So this is the podcast that a lot of people have been waiting for. Anna Tova Levin is going to share her donor conception journey and how she understood that she was donor conceived, her relationship with her donor, her relationship with siblings, her relationship with her parents, and how she sees it not just from a personal point of view, but also she's a bioethicist. So she's really dug into so many of the interesting and complex dilemmas that people face when they use donor conception, and she has so much to share. So I think you will really, really love this episode. Feel free to reach out to us anytime if you have questions, but pull up a chair in the meanwhile and listen. It's great. Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their family or for people who have already built their family with donor conception. I'm your host. My name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. And over my more than two decades of experience working both in fertility clinics and in my private practice, the Center for Family Building, I've met with thousands of donor-conceived individuals, children, recipients, and donors. And I've learned so much, and I'm here to teach you all that I've learned in this podcast. My guests and I will talk about everything that you need to know to have a better journey to parenthood. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. And today on our show, we have a really fantastic guest, and her name is Anna Tovin Levin, and she will tell you about her experience being donor conceived. She's also a bioethicist and a professor, so she can give you a lot of really interesting information as well. And I think you'll really enjoy this episode. So, welcome, Anna. Is did I leave anything out? Is there anything else you'd like me to include? That sounds great. Um, and thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. So, you know, I saw you speak at a conference on a panel, and I was really struck by your story and about so many things that you had to share with regard to how you discovered you were donor conceived, your perspective on it, your relationship with your family members, how it affects you culturally, and so many more things. So I would really love to share this with our audience because I think there's so many people out there that really are curious about that. So why don't we start with the first part? How do you feel about starting with your story? How did you discover that you were donor conceived? So I um, have known from a very young age that I was donor conceived. Um, My mom and dad, who they were married at the time that I was conceived, um, my dad was about 15 years older than my mom. So he had had a vasectomy after having children from a previous marriage. And when I was about six years old, my dad became a bit ill. Um, He had some dementia. And I was at an age where I was starting to ask questions about was I going to grow up to be like my parents? Um, and so around that time, my my parents sat me down and explained that, you know, my dad was my daddy and he loved me very much and he was there to take care of me and to support me, but that he was not my father. He was not the person who had provided the genetic material to make me and that instead my parents had used a donor to have me. Hmm. And they they didn't attach any judgments around this concept. They just said it in a very matter-of-fact, kind of age-appropriate way. So I started to incorporate that understanding into my vocabulary at that time. Um, we started to refer to the donor. I, I made up a nickname for him. We called him my medically unknown daddy, or MDUD. <laughs> um, and we would talk about him as you know this unknown person who I would never get to know, but we would have questions about what was he like? What did he look like? Who was he? So that's kind of how I first was told. And did you come up with that term yourself or did your family, how did that come about? Yeah, I I came up with that term myself. I really wanted to be able to talk about him. I had a lot of questions about him. um, And so it was easier to say, you know, he was my medically unknown daddy, you know, and and because it was anonymous, my parents kind of explained that we were never going to get to know him. We were never going to have more information than what the fertility doctor had given my parents. Um, So, you know, keeping it clear that he was unknown. He was a a dad of sorts, um, but not my daddy. He was just my medically unknown daddy and that we would not know who he was, um, just kept it kind of neutral. And do you remember that as being difficult to hear or how, how did you digest that information when you first heard it? Do you remember? 
So at the time, um, I, it was not difficult to hear, but over the years, as I was growing up, I definitely had kind of changing feelings about it at different points of my life. There were, so my, my dad, who my mom was married to, he ended up, they ended up divorcing when I was about seven. And then my dad actually passed away when I was 12. So for a few years in there, my mom was a single mother. um, And then she ultimately remarried my stepfather, who's still in my life today, and they're still married happily. So there was a period of time, particularly when I, it was just me and my mom, when I did have some, some anger about how I had been conceived, some jealousy kind of about other kids. Um, And I think a lot of it came from you know, not knowing this idea that I was never going to know who my biological father was, anger at my mom for having me the way that she had me, and just for this complete lack of knowledge um, and jealousy that other kids didn't have this missing information. You know, other kids could fill out their family tree and we, you know, we had a family tree project and other kids could fill out both sides of it. Other kids would go to the doctor and be able to give, you know, mom's medical history and dad's medical history. And every time it came up, you know, oh, where, where are your parents from? I would say, well, my mom is from here, but I don't know anything about my dad. And so it was it was really upsetting at times throughout my childhood and and you know kind of as I went through life my views about the whole thing shifted but I would definitely try periodically to to see if I could find him you know we had enough information that it would theoretically be possible to find him at various times but I I didn't know enough to really pinpoint exactly who he was mm-hmm. So I know this is probably an impossible question to ask, but what you just shared was that this was, you started to have a lot of feelings about donor conception at the same time where you're probably becoming more social in school, you're developing in other ways, right? Your abstract reasoning's developing a little bit. At the same time, your mother's separating from your father, which is a whole nother can of worms for everyone, right? So I guess I'm wondering if it's even possible to tease any of that out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, my mom is amazing. <laughs> she always made me really aware that I was very, very wanted, very, very loved. Like in my mind, I think adoption and donor conception are very, very different Absolutely. because a, at least donor conceived kids know that from the beginning they were wanted. Mm-hmm. That you know, everybody involved wanted them. Whereas kids who are adopted have to deal with that feeling of abandonment and not being wanted. So I think my mom really, like I knew all the time that I was loved, I was wanted, and that my mom just really wanted to be a mother and was willing to do whatever it took to become a mother. And she recognized early on that my dad was not a healthy person for her to have a child with. And so she, you know, sort of made it really clear that she did what she had to do to have a child. Hmm. And at times she felt bad about the, the anonymity piece, but she made it clear, you know, I would never change a thing. I love you just the way you are. You're perfect. Mm. You know, you are the child I always wanted. So I think that in the background, even if I was having my, you know, ups and downs of childhood and and whatnot, that was the consistency was that I always knew I was loved and wanted. And so, you know, I think the lows never got low enough Mm. to where it really upset me. Yeah. We actually just heard from somebody else this very same thing that this whole idea of feeling loved and wanted played into it so much. And you raise an interesting point with the adoption. Also, you know, people who were adopted very often think about their birth parents and the struggle and the pain they went through relinquishing them, whereas your sperm donor did not have pain, making a donation, emotional pain, right? And so it's a, he was just doing some, trying to do something nice. So I agree with you. I think it's a very different circumstance and it sounds like your mother handled it so well. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that I, well, two of the things that I always say um, whenever I'm talking to folks who are thinking about using donor conception, the two biggest things to me are age appropriate honesty and making sure that your child never has a moment where they remember not knowing. Mm -hmm. And I've, I definitely feel that my 
mom stood by both of those. And I've seen the harm that it that it can do when parents don't stand by both of those things. So again, you know, age appropriate honesty, obviously you're not going to sit a two-year-old down and explain to them how babies are made, but there's no reason that they can't start to develop some understanding and some vocabulary to help them understand where they came from. There doesn't need to be any judgment attached, but there can be language to make it clear to the child throughout their life you know, this is where you came from Mm -hmm. and it is what it is. And this is why you're here. So I think, you know, age appropriate honesty. And then again, that making sure that there's never a point where a child remembers not knowing. And that is so important because if they remember when they were told, I think it can feel so traumatic and it can feel like such a betrayal. You know, you've been lying to me all this time And then you decided to tell me the truth. You know, what made this the moment that you decided to tell me the truth? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, now that I have found my donor and found 40 or so half siblings, I've seen from their experiences what it did to them to find out later in life that they had been lied to for decades by their parents. Yeah. I want to talk about that, Anna, but I just want to go back to a point you just made, which I is my personal feeling about this, and I know a lot of people out there may not agree with it. But you know, the research shows that children who can be supported in who they are developmentally tend to do a lot better in life, right? And so we don't tell little children there's no tooth fairy. We don't tell ch- little children there's no Santa Claus or you know whatever you're practicing. I completely agree with you that I think it's nice to really be in step with their developmental stages while always telling them the truth, but recognizing that you don't have to hit them over the head with every gory detail of, I know your sperm donor is has 5,000 offspring when they're five years old. That's not necessary. So I, I completely agree with you, and I, I, I think that's fantastic. So tell me a little bit about how you found your donor, what made you decide to find your donor, and then the donor siblings? Growing up, um, you know, the information that we had about my donor was that he had been in medical school. We knew where he had gone to medical school. We knew that he was Jewish with brown hair and blue eyes. He had described himself as being funny and musical. And we knew that he had, you know, listed no known history of any genetic conditions. So, you know, if, if you really think about it, we knew the medical school he had gone to. We knew what year he had graduated. So if you really think about it, you know, you take a class of, let's say, 100 students around that time, assuming in the mid-80s it was about, I don't know, two-thirds male. Mm-hmm. You know, and of those men, how many were Jewish and then how many had brown hair and blue eyes, right? Theoretically, we could have found out fairly quickly. But of course, you can't just look up, you know, 20 Jewish men from a particular medical school class and call them, hey, are you my dad? (laughs) So growing up, I would kind of look online and see if I could find, you know, an alumni journal or an alumni magazine or a yearbook or something. And I never really found much. But in 2009, I got married, um, and my husband is also Jewish. And so as we were starting to think about building our family, um, we started to think, you know, hey, it would be really great if I could get my medical history and just have a better idea, you know, especially with so many conditions being more prevalent amongst Ashkenazi Jews, we thought it would be really helpful if I could get more information about my own genetic history. And so at that time, I sort of decided to delve a little bit deeper and try to find the donor. So I I found a listing and I I found something that had a picture of some of the students from the medical school class. And there was one in particular that just stood out to me for some reason. And so I showed it to my husband. I showed it to my parents. Everyone agreed. I looked just like him. So I decided to just go out on a limb and I Googled him and found his email address and I sent him an email. Wow. So this was 2009, 2010. So I sent him an email and I said, you know, hi, is there any chance that you donated sperm back in the day with this particular fertility doctor? This is what I know. I'm not looking for anything from you. I I tried to make it clear, like, I'm married. I'm happy. I'm educated. I'm successful. I have parents who I don't want you to adopt me. Yeah, Yeah, I I don't want you to adopt me. I just I'm curious to know who you are. And um, he wrote back almost right away and said, you know, it's not me because I don't have blue eyes. 
So I was like, oh, okay, I guess it's not him. And then the next day he wrote back again. And I, I actually recently went back into my email to find the email. And his answer was, it was funny. It was basically, you know, hi, Anna, you know, I wish you all of the best. I don't think I'm the person that you're looking for because I would never have said that I have blue eyes. I have hazel eyes. However, if I were the person you were looking for, this would be my advice to you as you and your husband look to grow your family, you know, raise your children with healthy food and water and lots of love and, hmm. you know, take them outside and, and all, all of this and, you know, make sure that they get lots of, I, I don't know, like he love just gave like very generic advice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Love and support, very generic advice. And then he dropped this thing at the end, like, and by the way, you know, my relatives have suffered from things like heart disease and diabetes and and some mental health struggles, but I don't think I'm your donor, so good luck to you. So that was in 2010. So at that point, you know, we, we read his email and my husband was convinced it was him at that yeah. point. You know, why yeah. would he go into that much detail if it wasn't him? And I sort of said, okay, I'm just going to give up. Like either it's him or it's not, but he clearly doesn't want to have anything to do with me. So I might as well let him be. So that was 2010. And then, you know, we kind of moved on with our lives. We had three children. My husband went to medical school. I went to law school. And then I had always really been interested in bioethics just from a, from a young age. And as part of my training in law school and public health, I, I loved bioethics. And so in 2019, I started in a bioethics program at Johns Hopkins. And at the beginning of my program, I said, you know, it would be fascinating for me to write my thesis about ethical issues in donor conception. And so I decided to go out on a limb and do 23andMe. So I purchased a kit, I spit into my tube, and the day before Thanksgiving in 2019, I got my results. Um, and I opened them up and I started scrolling and I had, you know, half sister, half sister, half brother, half brother. So at the time, I think there were like 25 half siblings wow. between 23andMe and Ancestry.com. And I called the first one who was listed. I found her on Facebook right away and I called her. I said, I just got my results. It looks like you're my half sister. She had gotten her results a few years earlier, so she already had a ton of information for me. Um, she, they had identified the donor, and it turns out it was that man who I had wow. contacted back in 2010. You know, she gave me all of this background information that they had about him. Uh, I think one or two of them had contacted him, and he had responded, but I think kind of fairly minimally. One person, I think, had met him, but he wasn't really actively involved with anyone you know, I knew that he was married and that he had three children that he and his wife had raised together. So I, I was able to get a lot of information immediately when I got my results. And then I decided to email him and I said, you know, hey, remember me? I reached out to you a decade ago. And at the time you said you were not the person I was looking for, but it looks like you were. And I would love to meet you. And I just sort of reiterated some of that same reassurance that I had tried to give him previously and said, you know, I'm married. I have a family. I have parents who are loving and kind and well. I'm not looking for anything from you. But from an academic perspective, I'm really interested in learning more about you, who you are, your thoughts about some of the ethical issues in sperm donation. So I, I reached out to him and he emailed me back within a couple of days. And he happened to be in a city close to where I live. So I got a chance to meet him within almost a week of getting my results. Wow. And since then, I've met him, I think, three or four times. I've had a chance to meet his wife now. I've met two of his three daughters. I've met about 15 of my half-siblings. And it's been, like, truly a life-changing experience. How so, Anna? Can you explain? Because I'm sure everybody wants to know, what does that feel like? What does it feel like when you meet him? Well, first of all, first he said no. Right. So I guess I was wondering about that. And then secondly, you met him and you had to kind of just gear up for that. What are your feelings about those things? Meeting him the first time was absolutely surreal. My mom and I 
don't look a whole lot alike. And we're, we're very similar in some ways, but very different in other ways. And my mom always joked growing up, she always used to say I was a half step off because there were times when she and I just didn't always see eye to eye on things. Or we just had a very different way of kind of processing information, thinking about things. And when I met him, I saw, you know, my facial expressions in his face. Wow. I, you can see me doing this already on the video. I, I talk with my hands a lot and he does the same thing. My cadence, my way of speaking is very similar to his. And so it, it felt like even though I was meeting him for the first time, it felt so familiar. Like I had, it felt like I had met him already. Hmm. So that was absolutely surreal. Now that I've had a chance to get to know him a little bit and really kind of pick his brain about things, I can understand why he said no initially. You know, he he and his wife were in the middle of raising three kids. Mm -hmm. They were very busy. They had their hands full. And I think at that time, you know, he, he had donated, I think, two or three times a week for like three or four years you know, just to to earn some extra cash while he was in medical school. And I think at that time, you know, he had no idea how many donor conceived children there were out there. And I think the thought of, you know, 10, a dozen, 50, you know, he had no idea how many. So the thought of all of these kids coming to him and saying, hey, are you my dad? And wanting something from him was just overwhelming and too much to handle at the time while they were in the midst of raising their family. And now that his kids are all grown up and out of the house, he's recognized that he has more capacity in his life to build relationships with those of us who want them. He's seen that not all 40 of us want a relationship with him, but I think for those of us who do and can show that we can be respectful of him and his privacy and his time, you know, he's willing to kind of put in some effort to getting to know us. And I think it helps too that he and I share a lot of academic interests and Hmm. professional interests. So, yeah, so it's been just really fascinating. Well, first of all, that's an amazing story, but... Anna, I'm also struck, and I'm sure everyone who's listening to this feels the same way. I'm also struck by the way that you have been so, had such a generous spirit towards this whole process, right? And everybody, you know, has the feelings they have and has the reactions they have, but it's so interesting that you're not resentful in any way towards your mom. You're not angry with him for not coming clean immediately. You're not angry or upset that you kind of got thrown when you saw face-to-face for the first time what his mannerisms were like and all of that. And you it seems like you're just taking it all in in a very loving way. You know, a lot of that comes from kind of a place of understanding the ethical issues and understanding. So in, in bioethics, there's this concept, it's called retrospective moral judgment. And it's this idea that we can't judge the actions of people, you know, 30, 40 years ago by today's standards, mm-hmm. because they didn't have the information then that we have now, right? So Good when point. I was conceived, I'll share my age, I'll be 38 next month. Mm-hmm. So when I was conceived, you know, 39 years ago, there was no 23andMe. There was no Ancestry.com. There was no, the Human Genome Project did not exist yet. So there was no way that we were ever going to find out who he was. And so everything that was done at that time was done assuming that it was never going to be known. And the idea then was these families want to have children they're not able to on their own for whatever reason, whether it's a an egg issue, a sperm issue, or two, you know, a same-sex couple having a baby, they're not able to do it on their own. So they need help. And, you know, fertility doctors had ways of helping them. And this was just how it was done. This was common practice at the time. And they didn't have the information then that we have now. But now that we have this information, we have to do better moving forward. But we can't go back and fix the wrongs that were done in the past. We just have to keep educating people about making better decisions moving forward. So, you know, I don't blame my mother for wanting to have a child and having a child, you know, seeking ways to have a child in the best way that she could. I don't blame my donor for being anonymous 
you know, because at the time, again, he was never going to be known. There was never a way to find out who he was. And that was all there was. Right. You know, and I don't blame the fertility doctor for practicing fertility medicine in the way that it was done everywhere at the time. You know, I think now, if I were to judge their actions today, I would judge them a little more harshly, right? At, at the time, for example, the fertility doctor gave different information to different families depending on what they were looking for. So, for oh, example, wow. my parents really wanted a Jewish donor. So he, he didn't lie to anybody, but he would sort of compile the information that families wanted to hear. So my parents really wanted a Jewish donor, and they really wanted to find a donor who looked like my dad. So he told them he was Jewish, he had brown hair, he had blue eyes, but he didn't tell them some other interesting elements, such as he was very outdoorsy, he was very spiritual, he was very into yoga. But then there were other families where he didn't tell them that he was hmm. Jewish, but he told them that they, you know, that he was athletic and, you know, a very, uh, you know, that he was a doctor and that had a musical background. So kind of depending on what the families were looking for from a donor, he would give different pieces of information to them. So today I would judge that. But, you know, 30 years ago, it was that that's just how he was practicing. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, a lot of kind of my attitude about it and my like my hope is that by sharing my story I can help parents and fertility doctors and you know anyone who's interacting with a family that's using donor conception make better choices moving forward so that kids are not impacted the way my half siblings have been impacted mm -hmm. you know I don't want someone to find out when they're 35 that their dad is not their father and yeah. that they've been lied to their whole life because that is absolutely a traumatic and horrible experience to have to go through. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can mm -hmm. ultimately be a positive experience. And a lot of my siblings experienced it in a positive way. But for so many of them, it was traumatic. So, you know, my hope is that now that we know better, we can do better moving forward. Maya Angelou, right? That's her quote. Yes. And of course, you know, we all went through the same thing in adoption, right? It wasn't it wasn't open, and the adult adoptee said, I really wish my parents had told me from day one. And the adoption agency said, you know, don't tell them and don't talk about it and just, you know, pretend these are your genetic children. So, you know, unfortunately, we didn't learn that lesson for this situation, but we're certainly learning now. And thanks to people like you, we're really hearing it directly. So tell me about the other side. What about, you said donor siblings, you've been in touch with the donor siblings who have not had the same experience. What, what happened there? And then I guess the other thing that uh, I wonder about is if you were reaching out to them on 23andMe or Ancestry, was there any concern? Well, what if this person doesn't know and I'm the one to tell them? Yeah, so I've had a lot of really interesting experiences um, in that regard. And I would say of my 40 siblings, there's a very small minority wow. of us who knew our whole lives. You know, I knew from age six, there was, I think, one or two had same-sex uh, couples as parents, so they obviously knew um, from an earlier age. And then I think there's one or two others who knew from a young age. But otherwise, almost all of them found out later in life, either because their parents sat them down and told them, you know, hey, we want to tell you something, your dad's not your dad, or because they did 23andMe or Ancestry and got their results to find out. So for those who were sat down and told, there was a lot of, you know, anger, a lot of animosity, a lot of confusion, a lot of betrayal, you know how could you have done this and kept this information from me for so long? Yeah. And it just makes them question their whole childhood, their whole existence, all of their connections with their family members on that side of their family. It makes you kind of revisit memories that you have from childhood and wonder, was this real? Or, you know, was my perception of reality so off because I didn't even know what was real. So that was really, really hard. And then for the ones who had to find out themselves through 23andMe or Ancestry, that's even harder because yeah. there, their parents didn't even tell them. They had to find out on their own, get their results, 
make sense of them and then approach their parents if they were still available and say, what is this? Why are my results not lining up with anything I've been told my whole life? It's been really, really hard for a lot of them. And I have had some of those difficult conversations. So one conversation I had was with a brother. Um, He got his results and he reached out to me on Ancestry and he said, you know, hi, Anna, I just got my results. It's showing that we have, you know, 25% of our DNA is shared. I'm really confused by what I'm seeing. My parents were both um, Italian immigrants. Um, from a small village in Italy. I grew up going to Italy every summer. Um, you know, I grew wow. up speaking this rare dialect of Italian, and my results are showing that I'm half Jewish, and I'm really confused. Can you explain to me what's happening? And he gave me his phone number. So I immediately called, and I said, you know, hi, I just got your message from Ancestry. Do you have some time to talk? And he said, well, I'm in the car right now. Um, you know, I'm on my way to a birthday party. Mm. I can talk now or later. I said, well, not in the car. you have time, let's do it now, but pull over first. Yes. So he pulled over. He said, okay, I'm, I'm on the side of the road. I said, okay, let's talk. And I said, you know, I'm guessing your parents were a little bit older. He said, yeah, you know, they were in their early 40s when they had me. I said, okay, I'm guessing maybe they had some trouble having you. He said, yeah, you know, my mom had two miscarriages before she had me. I said, okay, are, are your parents still alive? He said, no, they both passed away. I said, okay, I'm assuming you have no brothers and sisters. He said, no, I'm an only child. I said, okay, um, I'm assuming you were raised in you know this particular part of the country. He said, yeah, I was born and raised there. You know, now I live elsewhere, but I was born and raised there. I said, okay, so I'm going to tell you something. It's going to feel shocking. And I said, you know, your dad is not your biological father. I said, your parents used a sperm donor. You know, I gave them the name of the fertility doctor. I gave him as much information as I could. And his first reaction was, you're making this up. There's no way. I said, gosh, I I wish I was, but I'm not. I said, I promise you, this is all true. I said, I know it's really hard to hear. He said, well, how sure are you? I said, I'm a hundred percent sure. I said, there's, you know, genetic tests don't lie. This is, this is true. And so we talked probably for an hour that first time. I put him in touch with a few other siblings. Um, I I was able to put him in touch with the fertility doctor who he was able to reach out to and get some information. Um, And he confirmed it all. For him, it's actually been a fairly positive experience. I think because like me, he felt like having this information confirmed that he was always wanted that he hmm. that his parents really wanted to have a child and that you know they were willing to keep this secret to the grave to protect him to protect their family unit you know it's been a, a very positive experience and he's been able to incorporate this amazing group of siblings into his life but yeah i've had now i think two or three conversations just like that you know Someone got the results, were confused by them, and I kind of sat them and down and explained it to them. And then, of course, there's a number of siblings on 23andMe or Ancestry who have received their results and want nothing to do with any of this. They're not in contact with any of us. They don't want to know. You know, maybe they got their results, saw them, and they just have no desire to interact with any of this either. And I don't, obviously, I don't know why, what their reasons are, but... So, you know, not everyone wants to have the information that's available, but for those who do, it can be life altering. And what about the other siblings? Did any of them have negative uh, reactions? The ones who are who are engaged, I think, with the group of siblings, for the most part, have had positive experiences. I think it's largely the ones who are not involved and engaged who have had more negative experiences. I know one sister, for example, she just feels as though connecting with this group would be a betrayal of sorts to her dad. Um, She's very, very close with her dad and just doesn't want to incorporate any of this into her life because it would feel like a betrayal of Hmm. him. You know, she has a dad. She doesn't need to acknowledge any other parental figure in her life. And so, you know, she's kind of happy keeping it closed off, I think. For the ones who aren't engaged, I I can't say for sure, you know, how they've handled it. 
And I, I think for the most part, everyone now has is removed enough from the reveal of the information that they've been able to accept it and process it. Mm-hmm. But that initial discovery can be really hard. And then it settles in. Maybe you grieve over the loss of what you didn't know, and you kind of come out on the other side and connect, it sounds like. And what yeah. about with your dad, Anna? When you discovered this, your father was still alive. Did you like look at him and say, wait a minute? You know, I wonder if I have like your cheekbones or your musical talent, or now I look at you a little differently when you said this or that to me. Did you have any, did it affect your relationship anyway? My dad now is my, my stepfather. So he's been involved in my life since I was about eight and married to my mom since I was 12. So I never believed that he was my biological father. So I think for me, that experience was a little bit different, but for me, you know, he, he is my dad. I, I will never refer to my donor as my dad. My dad is my dad. My dad taught me mm-hmm. how to drive. He, you know, brought me to the hospital when I got appendicitis when I was 12. He mm. cleaned up, you know, my puke when I got <laughs> sick as a little kid. Mm-hmm. He walked me down the aisle when I got married. He's the papa to my kids. So, you know, for me, it doesn't change my relationship with him at all. He's my dad and nobody will ever replace him in my life. I think this just adds another layer of understanding about who I am and where I come from and why I am the way I am. Mm-hmm. So, but when you discovered it, your father was, your your first father was still alive, right? Oh, no, he, he had, he, he had passed away when I was 12. Oh, he had already passed away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He passed away when I was 12. So yeah, he was not around when I found the donor. Mm -hmm. I see. And so do you now have ongoing relationships with these siblings? Do you have like friendships? Do you feel like they're siblings? Do you feel like they're friends? Do you feel like they're cousins? Like, how do you see their, those relationships? Yeah. So I'm close with probably a handful, like five or six of them. And and then there's another, I don't know, five or six, 10 maybe, who I see kind of when I can. But for the ones who I'm closest with, I mean, I think of them as sisters and brothers. Oh. We text almost every day. We talk by FaceTime or by phone, you know, once a week at least. We're even at a point now where there are even some little conflicts that happen here and there. For example, you know, a, a big group of us got together for my one of my sister's wedding back in February. And, you know, there were a few little arguments or disagreements here and there about, you know, arranging the logistics or things along those lines. Natural things. You know, so we even have our... Yeah. So we we even, you know, have little moments of like sibling disagreements. Mm -hmm. But I think for the most part, you know, most of us grew up as only children. A few have siblings either from a different donor or I'm thinking of one sister in particular who she's the oldest of three where her dad was not able to have children and then had some sort of procedure and then was able to have children naturally. So she's the oldest of three, but she and her two sisters are half sisters biologically. But for the most part, we were raised, we were all raised as only children. So I think most of us see this as a very welcome addition to our lives, especially as an only child growing up and getting to the, to the other side where I'm now taking care of my parents. You know, it's nice to have the support of other only children who are going through similar things. And I think we're all kind of going through those things together. And it's amazing, like indescribable to have, to get siblings in your thirties without the baggage and the drama that comes from childhood and being raised together. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think we've all been able to really look at it in a positive way. And I mean, we have, and even <laughs> like the other day I was on a FaceTime call with one of my sisters and my husband was on the call too. And we re- we realized we looked so much alike and we had the same haircut and, oh, really? you know, we got the same bag or something, or mm-hmm. two of my sisters have almost identical tattoos in the same place. It's on their wrists. So I took a picture wow. of their wrists, you know, side by side. 
and you can see on on their wrists the almost exactly the same tattoo or you know there's four of us who have the same nostril pierced and have nose rings and wow. it's little coincidences like that where you say you know obviously it's not genetic right my genes don't determine me getting my nose pierced but there's something there's clearly something there that makes us all feel drawn to similar things similar styles you know, it's it's just incredible to find those connections. And how do your parents feel about all of this and these? Do they know the siblings? Do they have they met them? So my mom has met one of my sisters. And my, my mom and dad have met one of my sisters. I would love for them to meet more of them. I think they have really both kind of stepped back and let this be my journey. Nice. You know, I think they they recognize that these are they're my siblings to develop relationships with. And I think they're interested, they're intrigued by the connections, but they don't want to kind of step in. I think that my parents would love my siblings just as much as I love them, especially as they see me in them. Mm you know, because they love me. So they'll yes. see some of me in my siblings. So I would I would love for them to meet more of them. I just think logistically, it's been challenging because I'm on the East Coast, and most of them are on the West Coast. But mm-hmm. someday, I hope they'll get to meet more of them. Oh, so nice. So there's so it sounds like your parents are so supportive and really let you find your own path without any like direction or guidance saying this is your path and you have to choose to follow the path that's right for you. It makes me think about something else that came up in your panel, which was there was some discussion about if you have donor siblings, should you introduce them when the kids are very little rather than, let's say, waiting and saying, okay, you can chart your own course. Do you think it's beneficial to do that or to say, I'm going to connect with these donor siblings now. We're going to go to the playground together. We're going to whatever and develop those relationships for the child early. What are your thoughts about that? So I think because I didn't have them growing up, it's a little hard to say, but I think my gut feeling is that it would be best to introduce them and let them develop a relationship early on you know, not force the relationship, but the same way that you would have a play date with a neighbor down the street, you know, arrange kind of regular play dates for them to let them get to know one another. And if they get along and want to develop a friendship, great, let that develop and let that continue. And if they don't really seem to get along, you know, not to force it, but, you know, to let them kind of take the reins, so to speak. Because that way, you know, you're not keeping them from those potential relationships, but you're not forcing it upon them either. But I I remember hearing someone say, you know, just as you wouldn't give your child the option to meet an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent, you know, why are we giving children the option to meet siblings? You know, you're not going to ask your three-year-old, hey, do you want to go meet your grandpa? Mm-hmm. You're just going to bring your kid to go meet their grandpa. Yeah. And so I think it's kind of like that, you know, and, and then from there, the relationship will develop however it's going to develop. So I think in that same way, you know, you let them meet and then you let their relationship develop however it's going to develop. They're not going to get along perfectly with all of their siblings, but there might be, you know, a handful who they really connect with and get along with. And if they want to continue to pursue that, you know, let them do that. I think that really, to me, feels like the best way to give them that autonomy over, you know, having those relationships and letting them develop. Okay. So I have a really tough question for you. So in a situation like you're in, where there are people on the West Coast, there's the potential for them to connect, right? And have playdates and get close to each other and grow together, right? And then if you maybe had a connection, maybe your parents could like FaceTime or maybe once a year take a vacation. But because the kids don't grow up knowing each other, there may be a little bit of an imbalance because you don't have that familiarity of somebody that you grow up with. I think, 
you know, in, in this day and age, there's so many ways to connect with people, whether it's through writing or through FaceTime or through visits. And I think the more you can encourage those kinds of connections, the better. I think it is it is hard for sure, you know, when people are spread out so much. That should be the goal is letting kids develop those relationships. And then if, if they are farther away, you know, giving them those opportunities to connect I think makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I hope that answers the question. <laughs> yeah. And as the children develop, they can decide how they feel. And, you know, a lot of research points to the idea that it's a nice thing for, particularly for singletons, because they don't have that sibling relationship and they get to ha- right. experiment with things that single children don't get to experiment, you know, in in their relationships. So that's very nice. Yeah, I think that's great. I had another question for you in terms of culture, because some people really like, you know, we see people really feel a lot of pride around their culture. They feel like, I'm so happy that I'm a child from my mother's long line of Italian relatives, or, you know, I love, you know, celebrating St. Patrick's Day because I have this Irish blood. In Judaism, it can be a little bit difficult because there are so many requirements to be officially Jewish. Did you have any thoughts about that or concerns about it as you were learning about donor conception or your donor uh, specifically? For me personally, you know, my mom is Jewish, so I've known my whole life that I'm Jewish and I knew that my parents had sought out specifically a Jewish donor, but for a lot of my siblings they were surprised to find out that they were not whatever their dad was, right? So that yeah. brother I mentioned who grew up Italian, you know, he found out that he wasn't, you know, that his his dad was not his father and that actually he's half Jewish. And, you know, so for him, that was that was really shocking. But I think, you know, religion and culture are so much kind of what you what you want them to be and what you make of them. And so I think for a lot of people, it's it's really had them question their identity. But I think that it doesn't negate the experiences that they had growing up, you know, with cultural and kind of religious ceremonies and celebrations. And instead, I think a lot of folks have started to incorporate kind of new traditions into their lives rather than looking Mm -hmm. at it as replacing anything. You know, it's just adding to the richness of their life. Like they have, you know, and I think that's how I kind of try to think of it. You know, I have my mom's side of the family. I have my dad's side of the family. And now I also have some new things that I can incorporate from my biological father and his family, but it doesn't take away from the experiences or the culture that I've developed. It just adds to it. So I think, you know, the more that it can kind of be explained in that way, I think the better. It's not removing or replacing anything. It's just adding more richness. And you said earlier that you even share recipes with some siblings, right? Yeah, especially for the siblings who did not grow up Jewish. You know, I've shared the challah recipe that my family uses. Mm-hmm. I've shared a brisket recipe with, with them. I even asked my biological father at one point if he had any old family recipes that he could share with all of us. Unfortunately, I guess his parents were not really, they, they weren't ones to, to hold on to recipes. So he didn't have any recipes to share, but I got to share some of those traditions. One of my brothers who did grow up Jewish, he had at the beginning of the pandemic, he had a Zoom Shabbat where he kind of showed folks, you know, lighting the Shabbat candles and did the blessings over the wine and the challah. So it's a nice way to kind of bring our traditions to our siblings and just add again to that richness. That's so interesting. So the way that you see it, Anna, I think, and I think people will be very interested to hear this. It doesn't feel like, here's my mother, here's my father, here's the donor over here. And then once the donor comes in, it kind of negates the father or the mother or whoever has the gametes, and that person has to be left out. These two people are still the pillars of your life, but now you're adding on some richness and some culture and some background to your originally established family. Yeah, exactly. I think that's beautiful, Anna. That is fantastic. Really beautiful. Well, I'm sure everybody would be so happy to hear that. I remember in... in um one of my bioethics classes, I sort of gave to folks, you know, think about the most complicated way you can think to make a baby, right? And so I said, you know, it would be a sperm donor, an egg donor, 
a surrogate and two adopted parents. So theoretically, you know, to have a, a child, there could be five different adult individuals involved, right? And that child would know how much they were wanted by all five of those people. And there's no reason that all five of those people can't in some way contribute to who that child is and becomes, mm -hmm. right? Obviously, genetically, they're a mixture of their mother and their father, but the surrogate has the experience of going through the pregnancy and you know adds their own kind of life experience to that process and mm -hmm. the birth experience and the pregnancy, right? And then obviously the adopted parents are going to add their own experiences and traditions and values and customs into that child and, you know, nature versus nurture, right? So that child will be better off by having all five of those people contributing in some way to their life. You know, they may not have a relationship with all five of them. They might only have a relationship with the two who are raising them. But you know, to know that those five people helped create this person is beautiful. And I think it's the same thing, right, with donor conception. Like all three of those people are contributing to who this child ultimately becomes. And there's no reason that that needs to be a negative thing in any way, right? As long as everyone's kind of on the same page and treating it as this positive experience, there's no reason that it needs to be anything but that. Well, and I certainly hope that your philosophy can be you know, a driving force in the world because, as you know, we still live in a society where people say, well, you know, your mother's musical, so obviously you came from your mother's genetics, so you're going to be musical, or your father's math, you know, a math whiz, and so you're going to be a math whiz. And it kind of leaves everybody out, else out of the picture and also pigeonholes a child. And we talk about that a lot, you know, on the podcast. I think it's such a nice reframing to kind of think about and to empower the children to think about this wider sense of family. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, just as today, you know, kids are growing up with so many more models of what a family can look like, this yeah. is just another model, right? And I think it's really important to think of it like that. That's fantastic. Well, that is a good place for us to end, even though I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours. Uh, it's so wonderful that you came on and you've taken time away from your busy schedule. And I've want to say thank you to your child who's giving you a little time so that we could talk. And certainly, I, I would like to have people reach out if you're open to that. Are you on social media or available by email? Um, I'm happy to share my email address, Anna9985 at gmail.com. And I'm happy to have people reach out to me on there. I'm on Instagram and Facebook, but that's a little more private. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. All right, great. So for all of you, that is quite a gift Anna's given you. If you have some questions, you can email her. And certainly you can email me anytime. I'm really happy to be there for you. This is a wonderful, wonderful conversation. And I hope you listen to it again and again, because there's so many beautiful nuggets to take to heart. So thank you so much for coming today. And please subscribe, because that's how you can learn about all the new episodes and and also join our mailing list where you can get bonus content and other information. So thanks for coming and I'll see you next time. Thank you.